power for good. Injustice occurs when power is abused or exercised improperly for evil. And sadly, we live in a day and age where injustice is rampant. Two million children are exploited every single year in the sex trade. 27 million people are displaced from their homes every year due to conflict and persecution. At the same number, 27 million men, women and children are currently held as slaves across our world. More people are held in slavery this very day than over the course of the entire transatlantic slave trade. Closer to home, some 20% of American children live in poverty, a stat that is perhaps shocking to us in this wealthier area. And in our own lives as well, injustice occurs when power is abused or manipulated so that we might get our own selfish ends. The issue of justice and injustice is central and fundamental to humanity. And this passage helps us think about it from God's perspective. We're going to look at two different categories. First of all, we're going to look at four principles regarding the nature of justice itself. That's our first category, the nature of justice itself. And then secondly, we're going to look at two things God does to intercede and bring justice. Four things about the nature of justice, and then two things God does about it. Been greatly helped by one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Ralph Davis, on this passage, and we're going to follow his outline for the text. First of all, then, let's look in chapter 21, starting in verse 1, and then the nature of justice, or the nature, perhaps, of injustice. Ahab uh, is dealing here as the king of Israel with a man named Naboth, and Naboth owns a vineyard, and by all accounts, it's just in a great location and is a really sweet vineyard. It's kind of like the Napa Valley of Israel, okay? It's located uh, near the palace, and so uh, Ahab thinks, wow, that place gets a lot of sun, and I could really use that as a vegetable garden. I'd grow some carrots, grow some beans, grow some arugula, and somewhere I could grow strawberries. That'd be really great to get my hands on that vineyard. And so in verse uh, 2, he goes off to broker a deal with Naboth. And his offer is eminently reasonable. He says, okay, Naboth, you have this great field. It's by my house, so I want it. But exchange it for me. I'll give you a better vineyard somewhere else. Or if you prefer, I'll pay you the money. I'll, I'll give you a cash for this vineyard. Verse 3, he is met with a very strong response. No deal. No deal. Uh, No discussion, no contingencies, no. Uh, Why is this reasonable offer met with such a strong no? We get the answer again in verse 3. Because this land that belonged to Naboth was his family's inheritance in the promised land. So when the people of Israel came into the promised land, when they entered it to, to dwell there, the Lord gave all the people a portion of different sections of land to them. And the family's land was this a treasured piece of real estate that reminded them of God's faithfulness and of God's grace. So the Old Testament law actually forbade them from selling the land that the Lord had given them. They were allowed to lease it in cases of grinding poverty, but that did not apply in this case. So Naboth's refusal to sell his field is not one of petulance, but one of obedience to the Lord. 
He is faced with the choice of obeying the king or the king of kings. And he knows there can be no contest. So, in verse 4, Ahab goes home. He's furious and he's grumpy and he goes to bed for a good pout. When he doesn't come down for dinner, in verse 5, his wife Jezebel goes to investigate. And Ahab tells his wife all about what has happened. Interestingly, he leaves out the detail as to why Naboth had said no, in order to paint Naboth as a a petty or petulant man. Jezebel is thoroughly unimpressed, and quite rightly so, because whiny men do not make inspiring leaders. And she says, get out of bed, get up, dress yourself, and get on with this. Are you going to let some local grape picker tell you what to do? Are you, are you king of Israel or are you not? Are you man or a mouse? She is saying to him. Uh, then she ends, let me take care of this situation for you. So in verses 8 through 10, Jezebel goes and she sends uh, some emails from Ahab's account. And she tells the local authorities and the local leaders in Naboth's town that this is the plan. They are to proclaim a fast, a day of prayer. And they are to bring Naboth out and they are to sit him in front of all the people. And then they're to find two losers who are to come in and accuse Naboth of things that he hasn't done. And so uh, they come and accuse him of blasphemy against God and against the king. When when they have done this, they are to take him outside the city and stone him. The punishment for blasphemy. Verses 11 through 14 are very interesting. Uh, They basically uh, repeat Jezebel's instructions, uh, noting at each point how specifically they were carried out as decreed. The people knew that Jezebel was not someone that you messed with. And so they followed her instructions carefully. Verses 15 and 16 then, Jezebel reports back to Ahab and what has happened, and he happily skips off upon hearing of Naboth's death uh, to take possession of this field. The text, in many ways, is not flowery. It is sadly matter of fact, emphasizing the bleak and austere depravity of this situation. The key emphasis of the text is that injustice has been served. Naboth is dead. Five times in verses 13 through 16, we get an emphasis upon his death. Verse 13, they stoned him to death. Verse 14, he is dead dead. Verse 15, Naboth was stoned and was dead. Verse 15 again, he is not alive but dead. Verse 16, Naboth was dead. This fivefold repetition to emphasize the cruelty of what has taken place. And why did this grisly scene unfold? Why was Naboth stoned? Why did his blood spill? Why was his skull caved in? Why are the dogs licking his remains from the streets? Because Ahab didn't get what he wanted, and he sulked about it. And in response, Jezebel used her power improperly, used her power for evil ends, the very definition of injustice. This story then, this account, it gives us at least four principles to reflect upon as we consider the nature of injustice. Let's look at these four principles together. First of all, we see from this text that injustice may be inflicted by legitimate institutions. Injustice may be inflicted by legitimate 
institutions. Naboth's murder is carried out by the lawful officials, by the king and the queen and the local authorities. Now, of course, we believe that we are to be subject to the governing authorities, whoever they are. This is not a partisan sermon. Authorities have been put in place by God and we are to pray for them and respect them and pay our taxes to them and obey their lawful commandments. Look at Romans chapter 13, look at 1 Peter chapter 2 where we are commanded to obey the government and those letters were written in a context where the government was far from holy. And we believe that Christians are to be active and engaged in political and civil affairs. Many of you have been called to pursue mercy, pursue justice, pursue peace by working through governmental institutions. But as a people of God, we must be very careful never to conflate, never to confuse the king with the king of kings. We're in America, so I should really say never to confuse the government with the king of kings. As if the king and the government always speak for the king of kings. We must be a people who are unswervingly committed to obeying God, even if that means disobeying men and women. Now, of course, civil disobedience is a drastic thing, and I want us to have some balance here. When might we disobey the authorities? If and only if they do one of two things. First of all, if they command us to do something that God forbids. If we are commanded to do something that God forbids, then we have no option but to disobey. We think of Daniel when he is commanded to worship the king. And he refuses, and so he is cast into the lion's den. Second instance in which we might disobey the authorities is if the authorities forbid us to do something that God commands. The converse of the first point. If we are commanded to do something God forbids, or forbidden to do something that God commands. We think of the disciples in Acts chapter 5, when the authorities forbid them from speaking and teaching and preaching about Jesus. They have no option but to continue, and so they are flogged severely for their disobedience. Now, talk of civil disobedience might seem extreme, and in some ways it is, but in another sense, this is going to become increasingly important for us as biblical gospel convictions make less and less sense to the culture at large. We are moving away from a day and age where the truths of this book can be assumed in political life. And we must not take these things for granted. I was speaking with a local pastor this very week who was sharing that several years ago he was invited to say the prayer at a very prominent and important inauguration at the Capitol. When he arrived, they told him that he could lead the prayer, but he must not pray in the name of Jesus. And that if he did, he would not be asked back. You know what this pastor did? You know what he did. <laughs> he walked up and he prayed in the name of Jesus because there's no other name under heaven and earth by which men might be saved. And so there's no other name under heaven and earth that is worth praying. And rightly enough, they did never ask him back. So, fair is fair, I guess. But these issues are going to become more important for us as we move 
into this next generation. We must treasure, yes, and love our nation, but we must remember Philippians 3, verse 20, that we are citizens of heaven. This world is not our home. We belong to another land. We have a new allegiance. We have a new king. Our citizenship is with him. And so we must beware and know that injustice may be inflicted by legitimate institutions. That's the first principle we see in this text about the nature of injustice. The second one is uh, similar to it in that injustice may also be inflicted in pious ways. Injustice may also be inflicted in pious ways. Some particularly disturbing aspects of Jezebel's work here is that she dresses up her injustice in a very pious or holy way. Look with me at the text. First, in verse 9, she dresses up the injustice of this murder in religious garb. So she proclaims a fast, a holy day of prayer, and she accuses Naboth of a religious crime, of blasphemy against God and against the king. You know, who could doubt the, legit- the, the legitimacy of events that take place on such a holy, sacred day? Not only does she dress it up in religious garb, she also dresses up the injustice in legal garb. Verse 10, where we read that two witnesses were called to testify against Naboth. Why is this so significant? Because the Old Testament law stated that in order for someone to be stoned, there had to be the testimony of at least two witnesses. Jezebel knows the law and she is devious and she wants to make sure that she gets her man and doesn't let him off on a loophole or technicality. And so who could doubt the legitimacy of events that follow such a a quote-unquote biblical procedure? And yet in the midst of this religiosity and legality, in the midst of these events that to the outside world seem pious and proper and appropriate, in the midst of all of that we know that in reality, her acts were hideous and vile and repulsive. We must be careful that we do not let injustice be inflicted in pious ways. Third principle, injustice may be afflicted by legitimate institutions. Injustice may be inflicted in pious ways. Thirdly, injustice flourishes because of wickedness, but also because of weakness. Injustice flourishes because of wickedness, but also because of weakness. The wickedness is clear enough. These events come to pass as Jezebel, uh, who apparently has no heart, no uh, shred of uh, humanity, no uh, conscience, orchestrates events so that Naboth will be killed. But there's more to it than that, because uh, the local authorities knew of her wickedness and yet were too weak to stop it, and more than that, were so weak that they enforced it. Upon receiving Jezebel's email, no one replied all and said, this is a bad idea. This is an innocent man. No one put the proverbial whistle to their lips to say, we ought not to carry out this miscarriage of justice. Instead, they complied in the most cowardly fashion. Why? Because they're afraid of man. They're afraid of women. That's why. And how our church must not fall into this category. 
how we as a church must never fall into this category. May we, may we be a church who speaks the truth in love when we see injustice in our relationships, in our homes, in our schools, in our offices. May we not be found wanting in humility and in grace and in compassion, but may we also not be found wanting in courage and in boldness and in faith. May we not be like those who shrink back but as those who live with an active grace. May we be the people who will stand up and be counted when the moment comes. Injustice otherwise will flourish, not only because of wickedness, but because of weakness. That's the third principle, then. Injustice may be inflicted by legitimate institutions. Injustice may be inflicted in pious ways. And thirdly, injustice flourishes because of wickedness and also because of weakness. Fourth and last in this category, we see in this text that injustice comes to all, even and perhaps especially to those who follow God. Injustice comes to all, even and perhaps especially to those who will follow God. Naboth was a good man, and he was a loyal and faithful follower of the Lord. And he was prepared to stand up to a king in order that he might follow the Lord faithfully. What did he get in return? A painful, brutal death at the hands of wicked men and women. This is hardly health and wealth stuff. This is hardly a material return on his spiritual investment. No, injustice comes to all even and perhaps especially to those who follow God. Naboth lays as a bloody testimony to what might happen if you choose to follow the king of kings over against the king or the government. And may Jesus be so precious to us. May he be so real to us. May he be so alive and active in our hearts and in our souls so that we will have that kind of iron in our guts and that kind of steel in our spines should we ever need to stand up and hold fast to the gospel in the face of a world that looks to condemn. Injustice comes to all, even, perhaps especially, to those who follow God. So that's the first category that we see in our text, reflections upon the nature of injustice itself. Let's now move to look and see two things that God does about it. So there is all this injustice in the world. What does our God do about it? First of all, we see in verses 17 through 26 that God intervenes to bring justice. In the face of all this injustice, God intervenes to bring justice. Naboth meant nothing to Ahab, but he meant a lot to God. And so God hears his blood crying out from the ground. And verse 17 appears to Elijah and makes clear that there's going to be more to this story. He commands Elijah to go to Ahab, who is in the vineyard already, and issue this decree. Because you have done these things, King Ahab, because you have used your power improperly uh, for evil ends, because you have done this, you will die. In fact, in that place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, in that very place, so they will lick up your blood as well. Yes, even yours, O king. Verses 20 through 26, Elijah goes and appears before Ahab to deliver this news. He includes a word for Jezebel in verse 23, in case you think she is getting off 
lightly. Um, verse uh, 23, he tells that the dogs are going to get her too. God is bringing disaster upon Ahab and upon Jezebel to wipe them off the face of the world so that they will be able to execute their evil no more. He is judging them because the power he gave them for the benefit of those under their care has been exploited for evil ends. He is saying, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I am intervening to bring justice. Verses 24 and 25 are interesting because in case we think that this pronouncement, all this uh, dog-eating is um, too harsh, we get a recap that in the history of evil, in the history of evil, there had never been a couple as evil as Ahab and Jezebel. The two became one, and the one was a hellish combination. And so God's judgment is right and just. He is intervening to bring justice. As we look at our own world, there are many perplexing things, and God's, God's timing is often hard to, hard to fathom. It's easy for us to look at our, the condition of our world and wonder what he's up to. It's easy for us to look at the condition of our own lives and wonder if he cares. But this text is a very humbling reminder that the God of the Bible, the God of the Gospel, I don't know how passionate you are about justice. I don't know how much you care about these things. However much you care, the God of the Bible, the God of the gospel, has a thirst for justice that far exceeds our own. The God of the Bible has a thirst for justice, a passion for justice that far exceeds our own. He is grieved when power is abused and exercised improperly for evil. He is uh, grieved when these things happen. And so he intervenes with his omnipotent power to bring justice. And what happens in this account uh, when he intervenes here to bring justice is what God has promised to do, not just here, but in every situation. God has promised to do in every situation. Second Thessalonians verse 1. I am just, says God. I will pay back trouble to those who bring trouble and give relief to you who are troubled. We believe in a God who someday, somehow, is making all things right. A God who sees the injustice of the world and comes to make all things new. And this promise of intervening justice, this guarantee that justice is coming, is encouraging to us. It matters that there is not a single child abuser that has escaped his view. It matters that there is not one single dictator that has escaped his notice. It matters that there is not a single slave trafficker who is not in his line of sight. And it matters to know that justice is coming, that he will pay back trouble for trouble and give relief to those who are wronged. It is good to know that this world is not in a cosmic vacuum, but that everything wrong will be put right, and that we are moving toward justice. That's the first thing we see God does. In the face of injustice, God intervenes to bring justice. Second thing we see is in verses 27 through 29. Not only does God intervene to bring justice, But God also intervenes to bring grace. 
God intervenes to bring justice, but God also intervenes to bring grace. In verse 27, King Ahab does something surprising. He shows sincere and serious remorse. And so he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and he fasts and he hangs his head in shame. Elijah's visit has had an impact upon him and there are one or two flickers of light in his soul. And in response to this, God does something even more surprising. God does something even more surprising. In verses 28 and 29, he comes to Elijah and he says, believe what's happened over here. Look at how Ahab is humbling himself before me. We never thought we would see the day, knowing the wickedness of this king, that he would stop, breathe, and have a moment of humility. And because he's done that, I am going to delay the judgment that is coming. Not cancel it, but delay it. I can't help but wonder what Elijah's response was. Terrible relationship. He, he and Ahab have not been good friends. Ahab has pursued him from pillar to post and persecuted him at every turn. He has been the thorn in the side, the bane of his existence. And you know as a prophet, it's probably... I imagine it's kind of like being a preacher. There are some sermons that you're kind of nervous about preaching, right? And there are other sermons you're like, yes, I'm excited about this one. And I bet you Elijah, when he heard the word of judgment he had to bring to Ahab, was like, sweet. (laughs) I'm going to bring it today. And so he showed up and he pounded the pulpit and he said, you're going to get finally what you deserve. God has seen your evil and he's going to smoke you and he's going to smoke Jezebel and I love it. Justice is finally coming. Perhaps he thought that way, perhaps not. Now, though, he stops and realizes that God is a God of grace. Yes, he is a God of justice, but God is a God of grace. Behold your God who takes the most wicked couple in the history of the world and gives them every chance to return. God intervenes to bring grace. How do we respond to this? Two possibilities. First, we can respond with frustration. We can respond with frustration. Why? Because we want the child abusers to get what's coming to them. And we want the dictators to get what's coming to them. And we want the slave traffickers to get what they deserve. And we want justice for all those people who are out there. So we respond with frustration. Where is the justice gone when grace is being offered? Other way to respond, celebration. Celebration. Why? Because we want justice for people out there, but we don't want justice for ourselves. We don't want justice for ourselves. If God only intervenes to bring justice, what are we going to do about the things we deserve punishment for? What are we going to do with our shame, with our guilt, with our regrets. If the only option is justice, what are we going to do? Perhaps you're, not an, perhaps you're not the most evil couple in the history of the world, and I'm confident that the most evil couple in the history of the world does not attend MPC. Um, I hope. <laughs> perhaps you're not, but none of us is perfect, and all of us have sinned in grievous ways. And what are we hoping the Lord will do? pass those things over because they're not as bad as some other people's sins? That's not justice. Turn a blind eye to you because you've tried hard? That's not justice. 
we are a people who can celebrate that God brings grace. Because if he only intervenes to bring justice, then we will be condemned and we will be punished for the things that we ourselves have done. The fact that God intervenes to bring grace is good news to anyone who has ever done anything wrong. How can God do this? How can he offer grace in a way that doesn't do away with justice? How can he offer grace in a way that will uphold justice? Because we don't want to throw justice out of the window in the name of grace. How can he reconcile these things? He reconciles them through another man who is murdered at the hands of legitimate institutions, where the authorities of the day gave their blessing to his murder. He reconciles them through the murder of another man who was uh, murdered under uh, pious circumstances, under uh, the uh, guise of religiosity and legality. He reconciles justice and grace through another man who was murdered not only because of wickedness but because of weakness when the authorities who knew he had done no wrong and could not find a charge against him gave in to the fear of man and sent him to the cross all the same. He reconciles justice and grace because another man was murdered not as one who follows God but as one who is God. And so Jesus dies upon the cross to reconcile these two things. Justice because the punishment that sin deserves is being met. It is being satisfied. God doesn't forgive sin and just forget about it. He forgives sin by taking the punishment it is due and pouring it out upon his son so that injustice is dealt with, paid in full, justice is served. And yet at the same time it upholds grace. Why? Because the punishment he received is not a punishment he deserved, but one that we deserved. So that instead of getting justice, instead of getting what we deserve, we are given grace. We get what we don't deserve. We get forgiveness. Jesus is the fulfillment of this text in that it is through him that God is giving us every chance to return. And for every single person in this room, for me and for you, the punishment that your sin deserves will be paid for in full. And it will be paid for in one of two places. It will be paid for by ourselves in an eternity of hell or it's paid for at the cross as you come to Jesus for forgiveness. And he bids us come return, bids us to come home. He is intervening to bring us grace that we might be brought into relationship with him. Time is up. Biblically understood, justice has to do with the exercise of power. We want to be a church that uses the power that we have been given to pursue justice. And we want to be a church who celebrates the God that uses his power, not only to bring us justice, but to bring us grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for your creativity in communicating to us. That you give us principles and you give us story. You give us truth and you give us truth enacted. That we might wrap our hearts and minds around it. We are grateful and pray, Lord, that you would indeed make us a people who pursue justice. And make us a people who celebrate that you have given grace. These things we pray in your matchless name.